The Dory Monson Show on Cairo Radio. This is The Big Lead. This is The Big Lead and this is The Big Show. Dory Monson's Big Show. Brandy Cruz filling in for this final day. I mean, I suppose I'll fill in down the road at some point. But Dory's going to be back in the new year, ready to go. Uh, As Chris said there in the newscast, we're waiting for a press conference that we plan to take live uh, at the top of the hour, about 1 p.m., from Moscow, Moscow, Idaho, of course, an arrest made in that horrible case um, of the four young people who were killed there. And, you know, some interesting details are already coming out. I know there's still a lot of information to be determined about the suspect, but 28 years old, Brian Koberger uh, was arrested in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania at 3 a.m., uh, according to multiple reports, he was a PhD, Ph.D. student in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Washington State University. Uh, and I got to say, looking at his picture, it's one of those suspects where you look at him and you think, yeah, that lines up. Yes, I know that's back. very judgy, mm-hmm. sort of book by the cover, but there's just something about you've got this guy. He's in a suicide smock. So when you see him in the green um little kind of jumpsuit and they're not in just prison garb it's because it's a suicide smock they might have reason to believe that he's suicidal but just the way he's staring into the camera i mean considering the charges that he's facing it's a i think that i think that's it sometimes is the the face they make in that mug shot and mm-hmm. you oh yeah creepy yeah so i know this is a case of course that there's been some criticism of police handling of the case you know was, there was this thought that oh it's moscow idaho you got this podunk police agency they're not making any progress and uh, there was a lot of i think even dory had said at one point like you don't know what's happening behind the scenes you know mm-hmm. they might not be able to tell the public everything that's going on and so i hope that they'll answer questions and sort of give a detailed analysis of what they knew and when because right. it you know for a long time it was like no suspect no suspect no suspect now suspects in custody in the Poconos uh, and so one of the dads earlier in the week said that he thought it was going to be solved soon and he couldn't imagine it not and i i when i saw that quote i was like he knows something mm-hmm. because i don't think you would say that if he didn't i mean i think you could say i have faith that they're going to figure it out or whatever but the way he said it I, I i've been obsessed with this case i've read so many articles on this because it's just it's so scary and it seems so random and as of now we don't see a connection between these people yeah. so it's uh so hopefully we're going to yeah, closure. hopefully we're going to get some answers, but definitely a press conference. We will be carrying live around one o'clock whenever it drops. With that as mere prelude, let's get right to the big lead. The big lead. Top story. We know it's been a deadly uh, year for a lot of cities in the country and Seattle is no exception. Shooting deaths in the city of Seattle for 2022 are up 23 percent. Uh, There were 38 shooting deaths. Obviously, there's more homicides in total. We'll get to that in a moment. And 151 shootings that resulted in injuries in Seattle in 2022. Uh, And as I said, the number of shooting deaths up 23 percent, which is significant by any standard. As far as homicides go, um, I believe the total year to date, unless there's been one in the last couple of days I'm not aware of, is 57 homicides. In the city of Seattle, and you compare that to 42 in 2021. So, you know, Seattle, comparatively speaking to other major cities, like we're not trying to compare Seattle to Chicago, for instance, because 57 um, homicides for a major U.S. city. Others might look at that and say, oh, in comparison, that's nothing. 
But I don't want to be compared to Chicago or Baltimore or any of these other cities. You know, Seattle's supposed to be a world-class city, and crime is relative. So when you're looking at 57 homicides so far this year, 42 the year before, uh, the 10-year average for homicides in Seattle was 28 a year. So we are well above that in the city of Seattle. Which is why I was really surprised this morning because um, it kind of had me like questioning my own sanity. So I'm um, I subscribe to the New York Times. And so they send in these little, uh, you know, news alerts and stuff like that to your inbox. And I got one this morning and the subject line was a continuing drop in murders. Uh, it starts a drop in murders this year exemplifies the kind of news stories that get relatively little attention. The article goes on to basically say that murders in the U.S. are down um, from 2021 and 2022. Of course, it's looking at on average, and there are uh, several cities where the number of homicides have gone down. And it uh, points to some analytics that it used for uh, this information, and it kind of tracks, like, I think it's 93 major U.S. cities in coming to this conclusion that the number of homicides is down. On this list of 93, there's two cities in the state of Washington that are on the list. One of them is Seattle, and the other one is Spokane. And uh, both of them have seen an increase in homicides. So it's this list showing overall homicides are down. It's got some cities like in Chicago. Actually, Get this. So the number of homicides is down 15% in Chicago this year compared to last. Meanwhile, in Seattle, homicides are way up. So, yes, there are some major U.S. cities like Columbus, Ohio, Dallas, Texas, Denver, Colorado, Detroit, Michigan, El Paso, Texas, Fresno, California, that are all seeing their homicide rates drop. Not in Seattle. Not in Spokane. I can't imagine that's something folks are too proud of. You know, but I got deeper into this New York Times article, and I'm thinking about unsubscribing from the Times. It's not just over this one, but, you know, when I get some of these things in my inbox, I'm like, you can't actually, that can't be your reality, your worldview that you're approaching this from. So it basically goes into, so I'm not saying that the article is inaccurate. Overall, by the numbers, fewer people have been killed in 2022 so far than in 2021 and 2020. Unfortunately, Seattle and Spokane and Washington State are bucking that trend, but I'm very happy for the other cities that have seen the homicide rate go down. Don't get me wrong. But it goes into what the reason it believes that the homicide rate is lower in 2022. And the New York Times argues that the causes of the murder spike have receded. So they blame COVID for the murder spike in America. They say COVID disrupted much of life in 2020 and 2021, including social services that help keep people safe. That applies not just to policing, but also to places like schools and addiction treatment facilities that can help people, especially young men, the more common perpetrators and victims of violent crime. As life slowly returns to normal, these programs have reopened and helped suppress murders and shootings. Okay, I will buy the argument a tiny bit that COVID contributed to crime. I do think when you're in times of economic hardship, COVID can be a contributing factor or, you know, that can be a contributing factor to crime. Certainly COVID brought that out. So I'm not going to completely dismiss the notion that COVID in 2020 and 2021 led to a spike in crime across the country. 
However, you know, how do you explain the fact that we are out of COVID and Seattle continues to be a, see a significant spike in crime and homicides? And so does Spokane continue to see a spike in homicides. So you can blame it on COVID, but clearly that's not having an impact in Washington state. And then this is the other one of this part of this New York Times article that just gets me because they're just making stuff up at this point. So they said that murders went up because of what happened to George Floyd and the protests that followed. They said as a reason why homicides across the country have decreased in 2022, we have also uh, we also have additional distance from the murder of George Floyd in 2020, an event that not only spawned widespread protests, but also strained police community trust across the U.S. So they're making the argument without anything to back anything at all, anything at all to back the argument up that when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, it hurt community trust in the police. And so homicides went up. How does that make sense at all? It says, this is the New York Times pontificating. How did the fallout from the horror of Floyd's death tie into murder trends? Because those police community tensions may have reduced law enforcement's effectiveness, for example, making people more skeptical of working with the police and leading officers to be too cautious in fighting crime. Okay. And the public's loss of confidence in the police may have led, may have led, they're just, like I said, just throwing stuff out there, may have led more people to resolve conflicts through their own means, including violence, instead of through the justice system. The passage of time and efforts to repair trust have diminished those effects. So they're saying, again, they're just guessing that the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis made people have so much distrust in the police that they decided to settle scores on their own. Are you kidding me? Gang members were never going to the police to settle their scores. They were always settling their scores with a gun in the streets. Just point me to the person who, had it not been for their distrust of the police, wouldn't have gone and murdered someone. This makes no sense. It's wild. So, yeah, the... um. Oh, oh, gosh, one more. One more from the New York Times. This art, this is just, I got to unsubscribe from the New York Times. I do not want to give them another dollar. They also say, and again, just making stuff up, their third reason why homicides might be down nationwide this year. There is also a more abstract explanation, they say. COVID, Floyd's death, the 2020 election, and the January 6th attack have made the past few years feel chaotic, Damaging social cohesion and trust in institutions. What? So they're saying, oh, yeah, January 6th, the 2020 election, things were so chaotic that people went out and murdered other human beings. It's just wild. I mean, this whole New York Times article is just pontificating. And meanwhile, it does. It's not even relevant to us because there are still many U.S. cities that are seeing a spike in homicides Uh, a spike in shootings, and you can't contribute that to the pandemic. Now, the only rational explanation, I think, where you could tie George Floyd's death to an increase in the murder rate is because of, I I do agree with the argument about depolicing, but also the defunding debate. And people will say, oh, Brandy, they didn't actually defund the police in Seattle. They defunded the police via their words. 
And so in Seattle, we lost around 400 officers. Did they cut the budget for 400 officers? No. But their vitriol toward officers led them to flee. So that's the only real tie I see from the George, the death of George Floyd to why there was an increase in homicides is you don't have as much proactive policing out there because our police departments are strained just trying to respond to 911 calls. So in a nutshell, the New York Times is ridiculous and Seattle and Spokane uh, are apparently going against a larger trend in the rest of the country that has seen homicides dropping in 2022 as opposed to 2021 and 2020. All right, up next in The Big Lead. The Big Lead, Big Local. This is a tale that is all too familiar to a lot of homeowners, but specifically landlords in the city of Seattle. Uh, And I just sense their frustration. You know, I read this article and I could hear the frustration of this landlord without even hearing it. Mm -hmm. I was like, this poor guy. So uh, this is in the Northgate neighborhood of Seattle, which has gotten worse and worse over the years. It used to really not be that bad. There's a lot of problems up there. Um, In fact, it's one of I was looking at the Seattle homicide numbers, and it's uh, one of the uh, neighborhoods of the city with the most shootings. So there is a um, a home up there where the tenants have not paid the owner rent in two years, two years. So he says, you know, they were protected by the eviction moratorium during the pandemic. But then once that was lifted, uh, I believe this past February, they still refused to pay rent. And he said things just got worse and worse and worse. So, of course, there were the people who initially were on the lease. And then now it's just people coming and going. It sounds like it's some sort of like drug house or something crazy going on. The only recourse was, you know, they weren't paying their um, their utility bills. So the city ends up turning off utilities to the house because in Seattle, even if it's your house, You own it. Someone has not paid you rent in two years, almost a year of that, which was not covered by an eviction moratorium. The the process to remove those people from your home is exceptionally difficult, which is insane. So this homeowner says, essentially, you know, he is um, going he's been trying to get, um, you know, the legal basis to get these people out of the out of his thing. Um, and he actually says at this point, he spoke to uh, Cairo 7, that he doesn't even think that the original renters are living there. He thinks it's just turned into maybe their friends or something squatting. And now they're running like um, generators in the backyard because the city's turned off power. We just want these people to go away. And so these neighbors can live peacefully. So anyway, the um, neighbors surrounding them, this house, have been really concerned that it's a fire danger. That it poses a fire hazard. You know, they see like the gas cans in the backyard and the generators running uh, and neighbors tell Cairo 7 they have tried to alert the city to this. It's been a risk. They've been running these generators and having these gas cans back there for months now. We've been reporting it to the city. Nothing's really been happening. Well, surprise, surprise, the house finally caught on fire. There was finally a fire over there as the neighbors had predicted there would be as they tried to warn uh, the city that there would be. There was a fire there in the backyard. The neighbors are trying to scramble out in the middle of the night, thinking it's going to spread to their homes. And so the neighbors are understandably very, very frustrated, saying, hey, we alerted the city to this. We we tried to get them to take it seriously. You have the owner of the house who's like, they haven't paid rent in two years. I feel like I don't have any sort of recourse. Uh, the owner tells Kairos Evan that he's talked to any politician he can get in front of and has not found anyone who has any answers or solutions for him. I met the mayor, Bruce Harrell. I talked to him. He 
He said, he probably doesn't know what to do. I met uh, Attorney General Bob Ferguson. I met all the politicians and everybody. But nobody has the answer. Yeah, and he says that he has a very simple piece of advice for landlords who are in Seattle or thinking about renting a unit in Seattle. I would never advise anybody to own a property in the city of Seattle and rent it. Yeah. And I've heard that from other landlords, too, who are like, as soon as I can, I'm going to sell my property. I'm going to get out of Seattle. And it's not just, I mean, obviously, the really lengthy eviction moratorium. I heard from so many landlords who were so frustrated. They felt like, because you didn't have to prove that you needed an eviction moratorium. You didn't have to prove um, the financial hardship in order to, you know, basically get off on paying rent. And so you had people, a lot of landlords felt like they were just taking advantage of the fact that there was a moratorium and saying, well, if I don't have to pay rent, if there's this protection for me, then I'm not going to pay rent. And for landlords, and it was, you know, the city of Seattle and stuff, they'd be like, oh, well, these big landlords make so much money. And it's like, you have some landlords in the city who are renting out, you know, part of their home, who have just one or two units. And so that's just a ridiculous assertion. So it wasn't just this um, eviction moratorium that had landlords sharing the same sentiment. It's things like this, where it's like, you own a property. You've invested your hard-earned money in that property. You're trying to make it a good place for renters. And then you can have a situation where someone can stay there, can squat in it, can destroy it, can run a generator with gas tanks all over the backyard because they didn't pay the utility bills. And by the way, another really messed up element of this. So because they have not paid the utilities. This owner says he is now on the hook with the city for those utilities. You know what the bill is? $20,000. That's ridiculous. I mean, that is truly ridiculous. Under no circumstance should that be legal. And so you just put these landlords, and it goes back to something we've been discussing a lot, Dory's been discussing a lot, this prioritization of helping people who break the rules versus helping people who follow the rules. It should not be that hard for a landlord to be able to get back their property from someone who is squatting in it, who is ruining it. In what world does that make any sense? And so now, you know, I don't know. It doesn't say um, I don't know if the fire department has said how damaged the home was, but it sounds like the fire was initiated in the backyard. It was. It it looks like it caught the back of the house on fire, but they put it out and left. And the neighbor or those residents, whoever is living in that house, started another generator. Yeah, of course they did. And yeah, not because their power went out. It's because their power was shut Shut off off. because Mm -hmm. they weren't paying it. So just ridiculous, but another example of just what happens when common sense completely goes out the window, as it has in Seattle. And as this landlord said, and it is hard to disagree with him. I would never advise anybody to own a property in the city of Seattle and rent it. I think about you uh, complaining the other day when your neighbors had a loud generator just for one night. Can you imagine these poor neighbors that have been living with this? These generators constant yeah. over the last week. Oh, I can't months. even imagine. And I feel so bad for them. All right. Uh, quickly, let's get to the next story in The Big Lead. The Big Lead. Top trending. We just wanted to um, follow back up on Representative Katie Porter. Nicole's telling me to rap. Andrew told me I didn't have to. Okay. Yeah. I should save this I'm getting mixed one. messages from you, too. I don't know what Andrew's thinking. He said, go ahead. Keep going. We got time. 
And I'm getting the wrap up from Nicole. I think we'll save, save this it? for the next one. I don't want to rush through it. You have good audio. You know, so here stay I tuned am. for some really awesome audio. I'm just stuck in the middle. In the 12 o'clock hour. <laughs> All right. Well, we will we'll save the rep Katie Porter follow from our conversation yesterday. Also, just a reminder, and we'll we'll include this in the big lead as a breaking. We'll just we'll insert it since Nicole has cut me cut me off. Uh, remember, we're expecting a press conference out of Moscow, Idaho at about 1 p.m. Uh, they've arrested a suspect in the murder of those four uh, young people in Moscow. And so we're going to uh, carry that live when it happens. That'll be coming up. But that has been the big lead this hour. The big lead on Cairo Radio. As Nicole said, we're going to save a Congresswoman Katie Porter update for after the news, weather and traffic. Uh, we were talking yesterday about how she fired this young staffer for apparently giving her COVID and then turned around and like didn't follow the office protocols on COVID anyway. And now we've got some new audio from when she was sick that is crazy to listen to. I would not want to work for her anyway. I, I would not want to work for no. her, obviously. That and much more coming up on the big show. Brandy Cruz filling in. you're listening to Cairo News Radio. More specifically, you're listening to The Dory Monson Show on Cairo News Radio. Brandy Cruz filling in a final day here for my friend Dory Monson as he took a much-needed, much-deserved break over the holidays. Uh, as we're talking about the big lead, we were going to discuss in the big lead uh, further this uh, whole drama with Congresswoman Katie Porter, uh, progressive California, who apparently is... Also kind of a bully. And Nicola loves this story so much. I got to admit, I do as well, that she's like, we can't we can't fit it in in the big lead. You got to give it the time that it deserves. So we touched on this just briefly during the show yesterday because the, the information was just sort of coming out. But we've got some kind of interesting audio. So this goes back to the, just this past summer. And when it came to COVID this past summer, most of us, I would say, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but most of us were kind of past COVID. <laughs> we were like, okay, you know, we either did or did not get a vaccine. Didn't really matter because you could spread and still get COVID anyway. And it was sort of like things were back open and, you know, we weren't doing our regular social distancing masking thing. But Congresswoman Katie Porter was still very much taking the situation seriously with COVID. So much so that she berated one of her lower level staffers who she suspected of giving her COVID-19. So this uh, particular staff member, she uh, her name was Sasha, Sasha Georgiades, something like that. Um, She worked in Porter's office for two years as a veteran and service member liaison, which was fitting because Sasha had served in the U.S. Navy. Uh, She got a letter of accommodation like she, you know, was a veteran. Well, apparently, Representative Katie Porter does not care that this was a veteran working to serve veterans because uh, this young woman allegedly, and this is all all this were kind of gleaning from texts that the young woman released um, and posted on social media after being fired because she's like, what the heck here? So in case you didn't hear the text, let me just read these to you, because the way that Congresswoman Katie Porter is addressing this member of her staff is not only super unprofessional, 
but it's also just kind of cruel. It's also just really uh, kind of B-wordy, you know, uh, really catty. Um, so Congresswoman Porter texts Sasha, why did you not follow office protocol on testing? It's really disappointing. So it sounds like, and I'll give a little context, that the staffer didn't know they were infected, but maybe thought possibly they could have been or didn't submit to a testing as they should have. So Congresswoman Porter says, why did you not follow office protocol on testing? It's really disappointing. Sasha responds, I'm terribly sorry. You're right. I should have done better. Just because I felt okay in the moment doesn't mean that I was. Congresswoman Porter responds, Sasha, I cannot allow you back in the office given your failure to follow office policies. Cody will be in touch about having your personal effects shipped or delivered to your home and will lay out your remote work schedule and responsibilities for your last few weeks. Sasha says, I understand. Thank you for the last two years and all that I have learned. I hate to have disappointed you in this manner, as I know it isn't an excuse. I had or she she says, I know it isn't an excuse. I had found out my friend from the Navy had been murdered and my head was not in the best place. Not an excuse, but the reasoning for the lack of forethought. I appreciate this office, um, everything this office has done for me. So this young woman is being very gracious about it, you know, apologizing profusely, acknowledging she made a mistake, saying, I know it's not an excuse, but I found out my friend in the Navy was murdered, so I wasn't in the best headspace. And how does Congresswoman Katie Porter respond to that, to that heartfelt acknowledgement, apology, my friend was murdered? She says, well, you gave me COVID. In 25 months, it took you not following the rules to get me sick. My children have nobody to care for them. So that is the response from a congresswoman to her staff member who's just poured her heart out to her. Well, you took 25 months. I was fine from COVID for 25 months. It took you not following rules to get me sick. My children have nobody to care for them. And then we find this clip. So Katie Porter ends up getting COVID-19. And she's doing this... um, She's giving remarks virtually and just listen to the tone again with this. My kids have no one to care for them. The tone of her having to be virtual and having COVID-19 something by that point, millions of Americans had dealt with just fine. I am here at home sick with COVID and caring for my two children alone. Okay, She must be a single mother. Is she a single mother? I think she's divorced. Yes. But it's like, okay. I am not trying to to downplay the difficulty of parenting. I am not a parent. I imagine caring for two kids alone is not easy. I also would imagine that millions of parents across the country at some point got COVID and had to quarantine and deal with their children and that it wasn't fun. It's just the it's the anger in her voice over something that had happened to so many people. I am here at home sick with COVID and caring for my two children alone. I do not need, and American women do not need, any politicians telling them when and if they should make the decisions to raise children. Yeah, so she was talking about abortion rights. Um, And to be clear, her kids are elementary school age. I'm not sure exactly, but elementary, middle, and high. So she's got... Two kids that are probably taking care of themselves. Well, she said, I'm, she said, I'm taking care of my two kids. So right, I'm sure so she's probably talking the younger, about the younger ones. But still, that's not, it's not like she's got two toddlers running around bugging her. Yeah. Again, I'm not going to, I don't have kids. I so know. I always hate to tell parents what, what should overwhelm them. But she's clearly on this meeting. She looks and sounds just fine, except her like over dramatic dra- dramatism at having COVID-19. 
So anyway, and then it also comes out that, and this is something that the staffer had released. So after this staffer was let go, and it sounds like she was maybe on her way out, but they sped it up and wouldn't let her come back to the office. She finds out there's this uh, email, this mass email that's sent out to everyone who attended a certain caucus meeting. And what the caucus chair said is, hey, um, you know, we had some pretty lax mask um, policies at this meeting. And it turns out that Representative Katie Porter, who was there, has COVID. So, you know, you need to follow the COVID protocol. Well, as Sasha, the staffer who was fired, pointed out, Congresswoman Porter went to that meeting after knowing that she had been exposed to COVID-19. So here she's berating and bullying this young staffer in an email or in a text message saying, you you did not, I cannot in good faith let you back in the office because you violated COVID, COVID protocols. Well, meanwhile, right after that, Congresswoman Porter, knowing she'd been exposed to COVID, goes to this caucus meeting. Like the absolute hypocrisy of these people. And there was a good, um, there was a good write-up from the Gateway Pundit on this because as they pointed out, there is there have been some Porter staffers. And again, she's like as progressive as progressive comms. And it sounds like this girl, Sasha, really enjoyed working in her office. Like it was very complimentary of everything she'd learned. But it sounds like there's a lot of Porter staffers who are like speaking out about this, like, you know, anonymously, but saying that they want to resign and are like being encouraged to resign in protest because they feel You know, even though they were real hip on the COVID thing and, you know, keeping safe and stuff, they also think that this is like severe bullying of this female, like it's all about women empowerment in Congress. And then you see behind the scenes how she's treating this young staffer. uh, And it's just absolutely insane. So we had to uh, follow up on that. Uh, One more story I wanted to get to here. Twitter, the drama with Twitter and Elon Musk is uh, finding its way to Seattle. So there had been some reports that Twitter wasn't paying rent um, at its offices in California. And I didn't know how much to make of those reports at the time because when they came out, it was like two to three weeks into Elon Musk owning Twitter. And so it was like, well, maybe rent hasn't been due yet. <laughs> like you don't pay rent by the week. It's it's coming up to the end of the month. So maybe, you know, we'll see if they pay rent on the first of the month. But now we're finding out, this is according to New York Times, the the Seattle Times also contributed some reporting to this. Um, Twitter has closed its Seattle office and is facing eviction from it. That's according to the New York Times, although um, the landlord Unico Properties did not respond to their request. um, And there are no pending eviction lawsuits in any sort of court records. But this is the New York Times reporting. It says that of the uh, all the employees that got laid off by Elon Musk when he took over Twitter, 208 of them were in Washington. And they say that because of that, there basically isn't a need or necessity for the downtown office. And we know that Elon Musk has since said that he's trying to cut costs. He's trying to run Twitter like a business and he's trying to do away with things at Twitter that are not making them any money. And, you know, he added Twitter Blue, for instance, trying to make it profitable. And so part of that is, you know, getting rid of all the leases that you're maybe not using to the extent that you were. I think there's a lot of people working from home, et cetera. But I will admit a couple of the details in this story are, <laughs> are pretty interesting. So the, um, uh, so this, uh, century square tower downtown has housed the Twitter, uh, Seattle kind of branch since 2014. 
And usually there's like 200 workers who are there. And so if, you know, 208 workers in Washington state were laid off. Well, the New York Times reports that um, janitorial and security services at the Seattle office have been cut. And, quote, in some cases, the remaining employees have resorted to bringing their own toilet paper. (laughs) So that's how bad things have gotten at the Twitter office, allegedly, according to the New York Times, that there's like no services, no janitor, no security. And staffers who are still going there are bringing their own toilet paper. But it's like just work from home. Obviously, they're going to close that office down. So some of those details, I'm like, is that just trying to dunk on Elon Musk? Is that just an overblown detail? Uh, But it does sound like that uh, uh, location for Twitter in downtown Seattle is no more. And they can join the rest of the businesses that have left downtown Seattle. Brandy Cruz filling in for Dory Monson. Much more ahead on The Big Show. Peter, what's happening? Um, I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if you could be here around nine, that would be great. Okay? Okay. Oh, oh, and I almost forgot. Um, I'm also going to need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday, too. Okay. We um, lost some people this week, and uh, we need to sort of play catch-up. Thanks. (laughs) That, of course, a famous scene from the movie Office Space. Uh, If you remember the plot of that movie, so it's basically some dudes who are uh, miserable at the company they work at, um, and you just heard theirs. Peter Gibbons was the main character's name. Hates his job. So he teams up with two software engineers at the company, and they end up finding out this, like, scam to plant a little virus in their banking system that would allow them to siphon off just a couple cents on each transaction, and it would go into Peter's account, right? And unfortunately, one of the buddies, his software engineer friend, makes a mistake, and they end up, like, overnight siphoning off, like, $300,000. And so then it's, like, all the shenanigans with them trying not to get caught, trying not to go to prison. Well, uh, according to police, a former Zulily software engineer has been charged for a scheme that he told police was inspired by the 1999 film Office Space. Well, that's what police allege in the document. So he is accused of stealing. uh, The guy's name is, I'm terrible with names today, but these are difficult ones. Ermenildo Valdez Castro. Is that better? Dory, I feel like it really has some doozy pronunciation. So I'm just channeling him. He just says it with confidence. (laughs) So you think he knows what he's saying. (laughs) Yeah. Ermenildo Valdez Castro, which is definitely correct. Um, He stole more than $300,000 from Zulily by going in and making some software edits at checkout. So initially, he was trying to do this kind of under the radar, and he wrote a code that only applied to some Zulily customer checkouts. And what it would do is it would take the shipping fees that that customer would pay And it would instead, instead of sending them to Zulily, it would send them to a Stripe account that was owned by Castro. 
So then that came to be became a little suspicious. Zulily started investigating, so he changed it. And now he put a code in there that would double bill shipping. So Zulily would still get the shipping fees, but he would also get the shipping fees. So in doing that, he was able to steal 151000 The previous uh, version had netted him 110000 And then on top of that, he went in and he changed some of the prices of the items on Zulily to be like pennies on the dollar. So he stole like $40,000 worth of net value by reducing the costs associated with what he was buying. I, I'm surprised. So in the time of Office Space, which was one of my favorite movies in high school, um, they, they're like if you see the computers in their office, they're old school, right? So it makes more sense that you could switch something and nobody would notice because they're old school computers mm-hmm. that don't quite have the technology we have today. I can't believe he was able to get get away with this today without no or to, in today's time with these like systems that we have now. Well, he's not getting away with it. Well, yeah, we I don't want money. I wouldn't want to. What we've done is bad enough. We get caught laundering money. We're not going to white collar resort prison. No, no, no. We're going to federal <laughs> prison. <laughs> and I promise you, he would be going to. Well, it sounds like I don't know if he'd go to federal prison for this. I'm looking. Who charged him? Was it was it the feds? It doesn't even say in here. Oh, no. Seattle police. So I don't think Seattle police would be sending that to the feds. So King County, I guess, in a theft case. So I guess he'd be going through the state system. Which, honestly, you, you'd rather be in the federal system, if I'm being honest with you. <laughs> Having been in federal and state prisons for Not work, as an inmate. <laughs> for my job, I can tell you that federal prisons are much more cozy. But uh, interesting that they say that, and I mean, when you think about it, for a movie plot, that is a pretty ingenious way of trying to steal, not that I condone it, a little bit of money and get away with That's it. That's my only real motivation is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Just hard enough not to get fired. All right. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, we are expecting a press conference live out of Moscow, Idaho, where they have made finally an arrest in the murder of four young people there. Uh, so we're going to take that live when it does happen. Uh, but in the meantime, we will check news, weather, traffic, and be back with the fastest 15.